Welcome to everyone at all of our campuses, as well as those of you who might be watching online. My name is Erin, and I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, Merry Christmas to you. Did you know we're still in Christmas season? Yeah, good. So Advent brought us all the way up to Tuesday morning, and for the 12 days that unfold after that, we are in a very intentional time of just rejoicing in the Lord's coming. So Merry Christmas to you. To help us live more fully into this season, we've been in this Christmas sermon series called Strange Christmas, and we've been taking a look at some of the strangest gifts that we receive in the coming of Christ. So strange gifts like strange love that is unconditional and available to all. A couple weeks ago, Luke talked to us about strange peace something that is stronger and more powerful than the storms that we face. And then last week, Ben talked to us about strange joy. It's stronger, it's wider, and it's larger than happiness. And well, today, we're going to be talking about strange hope. So throughout this series, we've been borrowing some familiar language and images from the popular Netflix series, Stranger Things. And so all the colored lights and um, the fun that we've had with some 80s music and toys, that's just to play on that show. Now, I got to admit, I have not become a fan of the show yet, but my husband, Nathan, he is a big fan, and he's got a real fun connection with the show. So in the first season, you know, there's a, there's a real uh, famous funeral scene that you might have, have seen if you've watched the show. Well, that took place where Nathan grew up. So though the show is set in Indiana, in a town in Indiana, it was actually filmed in Fayette County, Georgia. So you can see here, this is actually my husband Nathan's little home church that he grew up in. This is the cemetery that his granddaddy is buried in. He used to mow this grass and he used to play around those tombstones. So just a fun connection, but uh, you know, one that has, has made a, a touch for him. No, ma no matter where you fall on the spectrum of somebody who is that avid fan or you've never even heard of the show, there's a reason why we chose the show to base our Christmas sermon series on. At its core, Stranger Things reminds us that God's story of salvation is the template for all human stories. So the show itself is full of metaphors, symbols, and even veiled references to the most compelling story ever told, and that's just the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most striking metaphors is how the world of Stranger Things has these two parallel interconnected dimensions. So the first is the world of the 1980s. And you've got, you know, who doesn't love the 1980s? It's a world that's very nostalgic and it's a simpler time. You've got a focus on fluorescent colors and big hair. Some things that we still see happening around this time in this age. And then you've got the second of the two parallel realities. And that's called the upside down. It's the shadowy world of darkness and death. The air is toxic, and it's filled with predatory monsters, or at least one who eats flesh. Not a pretty picture. 
But one of the main characters, this kid named Will, he actually gets lost in the upside down, and that sets the drama for the whole series. You see classic themes like love and friendship, courage and sacrifice, faith and fear, good versus evil. So whether this intrigues you or it just sounds ridiculous, um, it's actually closer to our reality than you might think. It was Mark Twain who once wrote, the truth is stranger than fiction. Now, our Christian story says that our reality, the one outside of camera sets and make-believe characters, the one that we live in daily, isn't too different from the fictional world of Stranger Things. And here's how. There are two realities unfolding at the same time, here and now. You've got the reality of God's reign in heaven, and then the reality of a fallen world in which death and sin are the stars of the show. Good versus evil, love versus hate, peace versus fear, joy versus despair, and hope versus hopelessness. These just aren't themes from fictional stories, but we claim them as themes in our own lives as well. You know, the two realities in the world of the show aren't exactly the same as the realities we live in, right? So in the show, the regular world is the good one, and the unseen world is the evil one. Well, in our reality, it's more like the opposite. We've got the unseen world that we claim is good. And then our real world, it's more like a mixed bag. We've got some good, we've got some evil, but even at its best, it's not exactly right. We know it's not quite like it's supposed to be. So just like in the show, there are key moments in our lives, in our world, when someone crosses from one reality to the other. Like when Jesus, Emmanuel, or God with us, came to be with us. In fact, it's his birth story that has been the anchor of what we've been talking about in this sermon series. So we're just going to remind ourselves about this birth story. You know, there's several accounts of it in our Bible and scripture. In the book of Matthew, we see how Jesus the Messiah was born out of a lineage that included kings and slaves, foreigners and heroes, prostitutes, destitutes. Now, Matthew reminds us that when Jesus came, he had been anticipated for so long. He was the long-awaited Messiah. And then in Luke's version of the Christmas story, we're reminded how when Jesus came, he came for all people, no matter their story or their status, their race, their gender. Luke shares that when Jesus came, that he brought joy and peace to all who welcomed him. Hey, but did you know that there's actually a third version of our Christmas story in the Bible? Did you know that? It's uh, told by the Apostle John. And it's not in his gospel account, but rather it's in another book of the Bible that he wrote, in the book called Revelation. And so many of you are probably scratching your head right now. You're like, Aaron, I don't know if you've read our Bible. There's no Christmas story in Revelation. That's not what it's about. Well, if, if that's your thought, don't worry. It took me many years before I actually realized that there is, in fact, a Christmas story in John's account in Revelation. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. If you've got your Bible, or maybe you've got a Bible app, go ahead and open it up. Revelation is the very last book in our Bible, so you can turn to it easily, hopefully. So what do you think of when you think of Revelation? Think of the end of the world, end times? Well, you're not alone if that's what you think about. The book of Revelation is probably the most misunderstood and misinterpreted book in our Bible, though. It has so much to offer us, even past what you might think about normally. But so often, we need a little extra help before we can get to the meaning. 
And so we're not going to have a chance to do a very in-depth study today, but if you would like to go deeper with Revelation, I do have a resource that I would recommend for you. It's um, by N.T. Wright. He wrote a book. It's a commentary. It's just called Revelation for Everyone. I've used this book. He's written one about each book of the Bible. So helpful just for you to learn a little bit more what John is trying to accomplish in his book. I encourage you to pick up a copy. So it's important to know that Revelation is written in a highly imaginative and very symbolic style of writing that's called apocalyptic literature. Go ahead and say that with me. Apocalyptic literature. Great. Okay, well, many people think that it's all about prophetic foretelling, and it does have some of that. But more than anything, it's about these vivid symbolic images that have deep meaning. Okay, if we have any artists who are here, the best way I know how to describe it to you is just like the surrealistic paintings of Salvador Dali. If you look at them by themselves, they make no sense, right? A whole bunch of very strange images put together. But actually, the painter knew what he was doing. Each image, each detail had a story that it was telling, and when they came together, it told a very deep story. Okay, the same thing is happening in apocalyptic literature. Far more important than any future implications of the visions that are listed in the book, the Apostle John actually wrote this book to real-world people in the first century who were going through real-world struggles, and he wrote it to give them hope, not to talk about the end of the world, but to give them hope in the here and now. So with that in mind, we can turn to Revelation chapter 12. And again, we're talking about the Christmas story, so let me just set the scene a little bit, the context. You might remember in this Christmas stories that we're familiar with, in the back of our minds, we are thinking about a woman, Mary, and she's pregnant with Jesus, waiting on the birth of her son. Now, it had been foretold again that this Jesus was going to be a new king who would usher in a new kingdom. So Herod, who was the king at the time, felt very threatened by this premonition. And in fact, so threatened that he ordered that all male children under the age of two in the area be killed. Just a slaughter of the innocents. A plan that would have destroyed God's rescue mission before it even got started. So that's the context that we bring into this story. Um, We're going to start in verse 1. I encourage you, you're welcome to read along on the screen. But more than anything, I don't want you to get stuck on the words I actually want you to let your imagination run wild with me for a minute. Be thinking about these images. They're so vivid. So let the images bring to mind a picture in your head. All right, let's start with verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Just be thinking about it, right? A hideous beast should be in your mind at this point. Well, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. Hey guys, this is actually in our Bible. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Then the war broke out in heaven, we see in verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Again, prophetic foretelling. He was not strong enough to defeat the powers in heaven. So we continue reading. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. 
He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Picture, listen to the sound of the heavenly host declaring in Luke's version, the Messiah. It says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Then we read in verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. What? Have you ever heard this story through the mindset of the Christmas story? Doesn't it sound like such a strange version of the story? There's no silent night, and I really am convinced that if Buddy the Elf were here and he were to hear this version, he would be crying right now. This is not normal. Such a strange story. And one that, if I'm honest with you, I have shied away from for many years as, as a Christ follower. Just because it's not that warm, cuddly, cozy, comfortable story that we so often like to cuddle up with our family and read on Christmas morning. It's not that kind of story. But in the verses that follow, and some would argue that more than any other place in Scripture, we find the hope of Christ. Hope. Kind of have to define that word a little bit and break down some stereotypes of how we use this word. You know, sometimes we think of hope as a wish. It's a cross of the fingers. It's a knock on wood. You might actually be surprised how often you use this word in your daily conversations. So I know I was as I was preparing for this talk. We say things all the time like, I hope you have a great day. Or I hope you get the job. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. These are all great desires. But the biblical concept of hope, the strange hope that we are talking about this Christmas, is so much more. Rather, our Jesus-centered strange hope is ultimately the same as strange love, strange peace, and strange joy. To some degree, you could basically substitute any of these four words, love, peace, joy, hope, for each other in most of what we've been saying during these last few weeks. Now, that's not to say that we are uncreative or we're not really good with words, but it's just to say that in many ways, it is the four, it's, it's four ways of saying the same thing. Each is the answer to the longing we most experience in this life. You could say that these gifts are all our Messiah, our greatest longing fulfilled through the life of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we're going to take a deeper look at the symbolism in John's Christmas story. So when he introduces the character of a fiery red dragon, fierce and opposed to the birth of the Christ child, he already says, hey, this is Satan. This is all that is evil. It symbolizes all that stands in opposition to good in this world. You can think of it like lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes, pride of life. More specifically, this story reminds us that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. This is our version of the upside-down story. This is the reality that we so often feel stuck in. And I don't know about you, but I have tasted the goodness, beauty, and love of Jesus in Christmas. But I'm still strongly aware of and deeply affected by the brokenness in this world. Hope feels distant as I painfully watch a loved one die a very slow and cruel death by disease.
feels fleeting, as even just this past week, a dear friend of mine said that her marriage is still in the rocks. They had thought they had gotten past some really difficult things, but once again, trust is broken between her and her husband. Hope feels elusive as I turn on the news and hear about war-torn nations and whole people groups that are being displaced from their homeland. And more so when I look in the mirror and each morning I'm dealing with the same thing over and over again. My own pride, my own self-centeredness, my own problems with worry and envy. You know, whatever your pain, whatever your suffering, you join me in saying, gosh, God, what is up with all of this? When will it stop? Why do we have to go through this? Is there any point to this life that we're living. But praise be to God that there is more to the story than this broken reality. Thankfully, God's story, our story, told through the Apostle John, does not end with a fiery dragon overcoming the world. Rather, in the pages that follow, we see God's people, God's church, in this heated battle against Satan. Sometimes fleeing, sometimes fighting, always vigilant, always active. They don't pretend that Satan isn't on the prowl and enter into this state of ignorant bliss. They don't try to combat the perceived hopelessness of this world with blind optimism or escaping from the pains of this world through numbness. They don't falsely put their hope in things that they know will come to an end that will ultimately disappoint. Things like people, other people, wealth, status, they don't do any of that. Rather, they know how to embrace the hope of Jesus. And then what they do is they pass it on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation until it comes to you and it comes to me. We're talking about the good news, the great news, the gospel of Jesus. that just is him saving this world. Yes, this is admittedly a very strange story. But it is the Christian story. And I believe it. The world-changing revolutionary truth of the first Christmas is that hope was introduced. Hope for the forgiveness of sins. Hope for a bright future forever. Hope for God's presence and power in daily living. Hope that isn't a religion or a philosophy, but that rather is a person, Jesus himself. And in God's story, the upside down is not a place of darkness and evil. There's already plenty of that in our world. But God's upside down is this thing that Jesus talked about more than any other thing. It's the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's that place anywhere at any time where God reigns, where goodness is law, where strange love, strange peace, strange joy, and strange hope are the markers of our lives and our relationships. It reminds me of one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. It simply says, Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great plan of sabotage. So the book of Revelation reminds us that Christmas was just the beginning of Jesus' coming. Though the child was snatched up to God and to his throne, he would come again in the years that followed to judge the living and the dead and ultimately bring all people into his glory. This is the second coming or second advent of which we put our ultimate hope. 
So just as you're not going to stop reading an intriguing novel after the first chapter, and you certainly wouldn't stop watching a great Netflix drama after the first episode, we cannot stop short of telling the full story of Jesus' coming. In fact, John takes us to the very end of his book, second to last chapter, and Revelation chapter 21, and this is what he tells us. He says, I tell of a time where God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Imagine a world like that. For the old order of things has passed away. And he goes on to say that in this day, Jesus will boldly declare, I am making all things new. So I don't know about you, but I long for this reality. That's where I want to live. And if we believe Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do the things that he says he will do, if we are people of faith, then why aren't we talking about this climactic ending more? Why aren't Christ's followers living into the ultimate hope that we just read about in this in-between time? If God is faithful and his promises in scripture are true, then that should change how we live here and now. Now, contrary to what many of us grew up hearing and even continue talking about today, Jesus' grand plan to save the world was not for us all to just fly away to heaven. <laughs> Instead, Jesus talked extensively about bringing heaven or the kingdom of God to earth and his disciples understood that they had a part in that project starting here and now and continuing well into eternity in fact the majority of the new testament which is just the bible that we read about from the birth of Jesus and everything that follows is just a collection of letters written by various Christ followers to various communities of faith in and around Asia Minor a whole bunch of churches and Revelation is one of these examples, but there are others. So Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, Philippians, the list goes on. Though each was written to a distinct community that had their own set of problems, there's actually a universal thread that goes throughout each letter. And that's just this idea that though there will be battles in this lifetime, the ultimate victory belongs to Jesus. And so we wait patiently for his return. And as we do, we do a couple things. The first is we cling to hope. Cling to hope in Jesus. I can't help but think of my friend Kim. Um, Kim's someone that I went to seminary with. And so we used to joke about how we lived these parallel lives. We both married our college sweethearts. And we both now have two girls that are about the same age. Well, Kim and I have lost touch with one another over the years. But I'm still able to keep up with her on Instagram. And over the last year, she's been facing some incredible battles, some great suffering. See, Kim was diagnosed with cancer. She's not very old, but she knows that this disease, this dreaded disease, will take her life. And I'm just amazed at, at the hope that she pours out in each post. You know, she's someone who is facing death and facing suffering right in, I mean, right in her face every single day. She knows how the enemy is trying to attack her. He's not creative, and she knows that. 
But she says that in the midst of this suffering, it's allowed her to see God's presence even more. Because God's presence, when he breaks through into her suffering, comes in such stark contrast to the world that she's living in right now. She calls these moments where God's presence is so clear, flickering graces. Just moments where light just kind of comes. So she sees God in the twinkling of Christmas trees. The lights that are there dancing. Or in the vitality of a plant on a windowsill. She recently wrote, When I can see the goodness and beauty of God's presence today, it makes facing the unknown of tomorrow a little less scary. Hope naturally leads to praise and glory in our God. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. He says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It means it just doesn't disappoint. You can put all your eggs in that basket. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's been given to us. Paul's essentially just saying, you know, God has been faithful, and now he's giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit to help comfort and guide you until his faithfulness will be realized even more in his coming. So while we cling to hope, we also do something else. We live in step with his Spirit, bringing more of the kingdom of God to earth. Hey, that's why a revelation is such an important part of our Christian story. This version of the Christmas story reminds us that there are cosmic implications to what happened in Bethlehem. To those who follow Jesus, we are citizens of a different kingdom than our own. Here and now in this crazy world, but also in the future full reality of God's kingdom. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians. You know, here's a community of faith that was undergoing severe persecution. They understood suffering. And Paul tries to encourage them, as he says in in chapter 3. Hey, guys, just remember, there's far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. The term citizens of high heaven would have made, would make great sense to Jews living in the first century. Uh, they understood what it meant to be a citizen of a nation and the responsibilities that came with that. So, for example, the task of Roman citizens, and especially those who lived outside the city of Rome, was to bring Roman culture and influence no matter where they were planted. So if it was in Philippi, great. If it was in Ephesus, great. Wherever they were planted, whatever community they found themselves rooted, they were to expand Roman influence there by the way that they lived. And if a Roman colony, like Philippi, for example, were under attack, the emperor himself, who was often called the rescuer or savior, would come from Rome to change the situation defeat the enemies, and establish the colony as firmly and as gloriously as Rome itself. This is the exact picture of what's happening in Philippians chapter 3. But it's also our picture today. Like the earliest believers, we are called to live in, and this is Eugene Peterson's phrase, we're called to live in little colonies of heaven in a country of death. Little colonies of heaven 
in a country of death. We have responsibility for bringing the life and rule of heaven to bear on earth while we wait patiently for Jesus' second coming. And we do that by ushering in a strange love, a strange peace, a strange joy, and a strange hope. And the latter is not built on the present struggles that we have, but rather in faith that Jesus has the ultimate victory. And when we live like this, we boldly proclaim that the future is not closed, it's not empty, and it's nothing worth fearing. We know how this story is, and we know how it ends, and that can make life today worth living. Now, I want to end with an illustration. Um, last week, Nathan was reading from Sports Illustrated, and he just passed me an article, and uh, it makes so much sense. It ties in so nicely with what we're talking about here. Now, whether you're a golf fan or not, you probably know at least a little bit about the story of Tiger Woods. Um, he roared into the scene in the mid-1990s, won like nobody before. He grew the game and captured the attention of so many people who were never interested in golf beforehand. And uh, years later, he fell from grace and was just, has been battling his way back into contention, right? So this year, in 2018, he actually won a tournament, uh, the first in a very long time. So this article was written about him. Check out what it says. The Valspar Championship was five days away last March when Tracy West put her phone down, just for a minute. When she picked it back up, she knew there had been a mistake. Mark Steinberg missed call. Steinberg, a.k.a. Steiny, the agent for Tiger Woods, left a voicemail. West, the Valspar tournament director, called him back without even listening to it. He delivered the three words that every tournament director has dreamed of hearing since 1996. Tiger is coming. West opened an Excel spreadsheet he had prepared for the moment called Tiger Plan. There were 51 items on it. In the next few days, the Tampa area tournament would add three crosswalks, two parking lots, and another admission gate double the size of the press room, build a second temporary pedestrian bridge, create a new interview area outside the scoring tent, tell the concessioners to increase supplies, hire another 20 off-duty police officers and more marshals, and most importantly, and my favorite, add 100 porta potties <laughs> A friend of West who had no interest in renting, her, renting his house to another golfer for the week said, I'll rent to Tiger, and West thought she was ready. But was she really? Golf fans, if Tiger is coming back to your tournament, it changes everything. People of earth, you and you and you and you and me, if Jesus is coming back to planet earth, it changes everything. If Tiger's coming, if news of his coming can flip a Tampa town upside down, how much more can news of Jesus coming back to earth flip the entire world upside down? It should change the way that we live today, and it should change the way that we live tomorrow. Guys, we are ending one year, and we are about to begin another. And instead of asking ourselves what gym we're going to join or what diet we're going to follow, we need to be asking ourselves, what part am I going to play in the Jesus plan? What part are you willing to play and ushering in the long-awaited arrival of someone far greater than Tiger Woods or any other person in human history. We get to choose, and we get to choose now, whether we're going to be opponents, passive bystanders, or active participants in the hard but oh-so-rewarding work of ushering in strange love, 
strange peace, strange joy, and strange hope. So it doesn't matter if you're cutting grass or setting up porta potties, organizing volunteers or writing press releases. You have a part to play in the big event. And it all starts by clinging to hope and then taking everything, using everything that God has given you, your time, your talents, your possessions, and even the story of your suffering to usher in the kingdom of God. We get to choose now if we are going to live a life that we are proud to tell our grandkids about, and more importantly, that we are proud to stand before God on judgment day and talk about. Choose hope, not optimism, not denial, not escapism, but hope, a.k.a. Jesus, our Messiah. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we confess that many times we feel like we've been left alone in the battle of life. So easily we forget that you have gone before us and conquered evil once and for all the victory is yours. Will you please grant us courage to live in the here and now with hope in you and your story as our guide. And through it all, all glory be to Christ. Amen. Hey, so guys, we're so glad that you're here. And if you're new here, if this is your first time, I just want to remind you that we'd love to meet you. Um, Alan's right over there at one of our new here areas. There's another one out in the commons area. Hope you'll stop by and service as it ends. Also, if something's on your heart weighing heavy and you'd like to talk with someone or pray with someone, we're going to have some prayer partners right here in front of the Christmas tree. So come on by. Now, if you are able, would you please stand with me right now? I want to share a blessing for us as we leave this place. Um, these are words that Paul spoke to the church that was in Rome. It's in his letter called Romans in the 15th chapter. And let this be an encouragement to you as you leave today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you soon.